Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. So we're picking it up at chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi 2, 17. And this is uh, God's complaint to the people, and they're complaining back. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord in the days gone by as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Morning, we're going to play a quick game while I raise my stand up here. Lock it in. Anyone know the game Lock It In? Hear a song on the radio or a line and you've got to guess what the song is and who sung it. I'll give you the first line and you've got to lock it in in about the 30 seconds it takes me to fix this stand. There's a little boy waiting at the counter of a corner shop. Locked in, locked in. Let me keep reading out the lyrics for us. He's been waiting down there. He's been waiting all day. No one ever seems to see him from the top. He's been knocked around, pushed to the ground. And he gets to his feet and he says, what about me? (laughs) It isn't fair. I've had enough and I want my share. Can't you see? I want to live. But you just take more than you give. This song wasn't originally sung by Shannon Noll, believe it or not, in the first series of Australian Idol when I was still in high school. Uh, but it was sung by a late 90s band called uh, Moving Pictures and it has been seared for many of us into our memories, whether we like it or not, because of Australian Idol and Shannon Noll. For the older folk, it might have been already seared in your memories from Moving Pictures. But whether, whether you know the song or not, whether you know the lyrics or not, the reality is if you're anything like me, you know the song well because you know the experience. We know the word so well because it's our experience of life. We get it. We know what it's like to be overlooked. We know what it's like waiting to be loved. 
unseen by others, neglected by others. But the feeling is, is made almost ten times worse when we know that we are seen and yet those who see us choose to ignore us, to choose to push us down and knock us to the ground. And so it's one thing about how other people treat us in this way, but it's another thing to ask the question, well, is this how God treats us? Is he like everybody else? Does God see me? And then does he still choose not to care? Does he push me lower on the pecking order and other people seem to to be blessed by him but not me? Does he decide that it's, does he see and actually decide that what's happening is actually okay? That's good and right. We're not alone in our experience because in this passage, God's people are feeling this. They're feeling and they are pushed down. They have been knocked around by the other nations. And we've seen so far in Malachi that they're actually not feeling God's love for them at all. Remember the beginning of Malachi where it says, God, how have you loved us? And in this passage, we discover they're thinking, well, God must be okay then with what's happening to us. They're asking, where is the God of justice? What about me? It isn't fair. What about us, God? It isn't fair. And God's answer comes to them, though, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. And he says, I'm coming. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. I am coming, says their God. And you can almost feel the the relief flood into their hearts like, oh, yes, my God of justice, my God of righteousness, he's coming, he's coming. You can almost hear them think in their heads as well, finally, he's going to make them pay for what they've done to us. Finally, he's going to pay them back for how they've treated us. But the surprise is that God is actually coming to them because they're no better than those other nations out there, those evil people that they're complaining about. Malachi has, has been giving us a window throughout this book of his into the heart of God's people at this time, showing us the kind of people that they are. And the kind of people that they are, they're the kind of people who treat God like rubbish. They're the kind of people who treat their marriages no better. And in this passage, we see that, well, they're treating other people just like God and uh, their marriages and their family, like rubbish. Their hearts lack the love of God for other people, even for their enemies. And so how, well, does God see? Yes, God does see. He sees the evil, he sees the wrong, he sees the injustice. Does God see the absence of love and goodness? Yes, 
He does. But he cares to see beyond and deeper than they care to see. God sees their heart. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, like God's people in Malachi's day, we too aren't just the victims in the story. We too find the same uh, evil and wrong and injustice at work in our hearts. What about how we've treated other people? What about when we have chosen to do the same to them as if it was good and okay and good? But it's not. We cry for justice. We cry for where's the love? Where's the goodness? But do we know what we're asking for? Because God will not only hold others accountable for what's going on in their lives and in their hearts and how they treat other people, he's going to hold his own people to account too. And in verse 2, God asks, when I come to you, will you be the ones left standing who are in the right? Will you be the ones when I come who will be able to endure as those who are good? Because remember, God sees beyond and deeper than we care to see. And yet, almost in the same breath, he says at the end of the passage in uh, uh, verse 5, when I come to you, don't fear. What? They have, and we have every right to fear, to be afraid of having our dirty laundry exposed before God and others. So how can God say, and how, yeah, how can he say don't fear, and how can we trust him and not fear his coming? Well, we cannot fear because of what God goes on to say he's going to do. He's going to bring a refining judgment, not a destructive judgment. Notice in verse 3 to 5 how God says he's coming to refine and to judge his people. Verse 3, he tells us he's going to refine them. And then in verse 5, we kind of get that he's going to put them on trial or he's going to come and judge them or bring judgment. But notice that sandwiched in the middle is the purpose for the refining judgment. This refining judgment produces something. It's not destructive. It doesn't destroy something. It transforms something. It's transformative. It's going to change them. He says in verse 3, I'm going to draw near to you as a refiner's fire, like a laundress soap. In verse 5, I'm going to come and put you on trial. Then, then you will be righteous and you will live in lives that are pleasing to God. Throughout high school, uh, each year we would have work experience. A week you'd go away for a week of work experience. And one week, uh, one year, I went to go work with my dad. My dad, at the time, um, was working at a mine, which he's actually back to now, which is funny. Um, in for me, obviously not for you. Um, <laughs> he's working at a mine. Uh, at that time, uh, called Ernest Henry. It's out in Cloncurry, kind of almost 
kind of central Queensland, and it's a gold, copper, and coal mine. And there, I got to see some awesome stuff, like lots of cool things. But one of the things I got to see and got to know a little bit about, which I'm sorry, my memory is very fuzzy on this, so the details might be quite um, amateur, but I got to see the big um, refining tanks where they would put what I think is what you call ore. You put the ore in it and it's mixed with all the, the good stuff, the valuable things, the 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 copper and maybe the gold as well. And in there, those tanks, they would refine it. And through that process, through the heat and the added chemicals, over time, the the, the valuable things would rise and bubble to the surface and scoop them off and keep them. And But the impurities would, would sift to the bottom and they'd just... They'd They'd get rid of that. It was this refining process that wasn't destructive. It was transformative. It was changing something. It was taking what was valuable and removing what wasn't. God's people are going to be refined by their God. But the question is, what is God going to refine in them? Well, we're told there, remember in verse 4, a righteousness that is pleasing to God. The Bible talks a lot about righteousness, so it's probably worth just slowing down a little bit just to ask, well, what is the righteousness that God talks about that the Bible has in mind? And so there's two words that we get in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, that are kind of used interchangeably to explain what righteousness is. And we get both of those in the passage. In uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, we get the word justice. And then in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, we get the word righteousness. Both of these words have the purpose to focus us in on the inner life of a person. What characterizes a person's inner world, what's unseen, but is very much alive and working, their heart. Righteousness describes a particular kind of inner person, a particular kind of heart. But what is that heart? What kind of heart is this? It's a heart of inner goodness, of inner goodness that is pleasing in God's eyes. To be righteous is to have a heart of true inner goodness that is in a healthy relationship with God. And in verse 5, God reminds his people of what this true inner goodness looks like by reminding them of his goodness to them, by reminding them of his heart to them. And he quotes from or alludes to Deuteronomy 24 verse 17, which describes how God has treated them, how he has redeemed them, how he brought them out of slavery to be his beloved children, where God redeemed them out of his love for them. And he says that this kind of love that they've experienced was meant to produce the same kind of love in their heart to others. To treat others like God treated them, to seek the other, the other person's well-being in love, seeking the well-being of others. So what does this righteousness mean? It means having a heart, an inner world of loving others for their sake, for their well-being, just like God has loved us for ours. 
And so verse 5, yes, it's a, a reminder, but it's a very strong warning because God's people were meant to be loving others like this, like the way God has loved them, but they're not. They are not seeking the well-being of others. And this is the result of them forgetting God's love for them. God sees people's inner world. He sees the heart and it's not okay. What he sees, it's not good. He's not pleased. He doesn't choose to ignore it, but he doesn't choose to utterly destroy it either. He chooses to refine and to restore. He chooses to refine and restore them from the inside out. Those who have the same evil, wrong, injustice that they're complaining about. God's people are absent of the righteousness. God's people, their hearts are absent of this true inner goodness. And we too have hearts that are absent of this true inner goodness. We too are absent of this righteousness. That's why we need Jesus. That's why Jesus has changed us. That's why we're sitting here. Which makes us ask, makes us ask the question, then, well, how does God actually bring this refinement in our life? And, well, the answer comes as we follow the story of the Bible. The, the question slowly unfolds as we encounter Jesus, as we encounter the messenger that God said would come and prepare his way, John the Baptist. The New Testament says he has come and he's the one coming to prepare the way for the Lord. In the Lord is Jesus. And in, the, in Jesus, God draws near. He draws near to bring his refining judgment. Because also, like Malachi told us, Jesus sees the unrighteousness. Now, the song by Moving Pictures, What About Me? It was actually inspired by uh, the writer, um, I think Gary Frost, one of the writers, Gary Frost, his, ex- his experience of seeing injustice, of unrighteousness, or his experience of seeing the absence of love. And it was when he was sitting at a, his local Sydney suburb cafe and there's a little boy sitting there waiting to be served. It was an experience sufficient enough to move him to write a song about it. And like Frost, Jesus sees the little people. He sees those who are unloved. He sees those who are overlooked. He sees those who have an absence of love and goodness in their life. And he chooses to do something about it. But unlike Frost, Jesus doesn't write a song. What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, seeing those who have no true inner goodness, the unrighteous ones. Jesus sees their hearts, a longing for these things to be made right. Now, whether that is uh, because of their own awareness of the lack of that within themselves, haunted by past wrongs that they wish they never did, or haunted by the things in the past that they wish they had done but didn't, or whether they're haunted or broken by the things in the past that should never have been done to them in the first place perhaps haunted by the brokenness that they've inflicted on others. 
by the brokenness of not having something done to them that should have been done, things left undone. Jesus sees the people who long for things to be made right. And Jesus sees them. He doesn't neglect them. He doesn't say it's okay. No, he says, come and follow me. Come and be with me. Draw near to me. And I'll bring this refining work in your life. I will bring about true inner goodness. Love will no longer be absent for you. Righteousness will no longer be absent. Jesus refines and purifies us, though, in two ways. Because the question is, if this is what Jesus wants to do, well, how does he do it? He does it in two ways. Through his death, it purifies us, and his life and his teaching refines us. So Jesus' death doesn't just uh, deal with the penalty for our sin. It doesn't just take the cost for our sin. His death actually cleanses us. It purifies our heart. We're told in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 14, that the blood of Jesus was unblemished and it was able to cleanse our hearts, our conscience, our inner world of our unrighteousness so that we might serve the living God. Notice that Jesus lived that unblemished life. He didn't need to be refined or, or purified. And so his sacrifice for us it washes us clean of our unrighteousness. Or in the words of Malachi, his blood, when it was poured into our life and our hearts by the Spirit, will kind of scrubbed us clean like a launderer's soap does to dirty clothes. Now, I'm very familiar at the moment with dirty clothes because Hosea, you know, well on his way to two, is learning how to do life. And one of those things he's learning to do is eat and food gets all over him, all over his clothes. I won't mention the cloth nappies. That's another story for another time. But, yeah, you can. it's gross. It's dirty. It's messy. It's unclean. And it needs to be cleansed. It needs to be purified. His, his clothes need to be bleached. His nappies definitely need to be bleached. It needs to be cleaned, washed. So there's no... Like there's no dirt and uncleanness remaining. After every meal, we need to wipe and clean his clothes. We need to wipe and wash him down. Funny enough, bath time is after dinner because he's so dirty. And that's what Jesus' death does for us. It washes our hearts clean. It purifies us. It wipes away our hearts clean before God. And our hearts are covered in the blood of Jesus, we're purified. But this is an objective change. It's a status thing. It's how God views us and sees us. God sees us as clean, as righteous, like Jesus. Unblemished, like Him. But it's only a status. We're declared to be righteous by God because of Jesus' righteous blood that covers us, that covers our unrighteous hearts. But like we're saying, it's an objective thing. It's a status thing. So just because your heart has been covered by the blood of Jesus, just because Jesus has died for us, it doesn't mean that the habits of our heart suddenly change. 
Yes, things do change in our life when we come to follow Jesus, but not everything changes, not the deep things. The things of our heart often remain unchanged. Now, just like Hosea, when we clean him up, it doesn't automatically change his eating habits. But Hebrews talks about what the death of Jesus then moves us and allows us to then get onto to living a life, to being changed, living lives that are pleasing and acceptable to God. So let's let's think about now how Jesus' life and his teachings actually refines our heart. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount shows us what true righteousness, what true inner goodness looks like. He shows us uh, by giving us a bunch of illustrations. Um, I'm not going to work through them all. I'm just going to give us a bit of a snapshot of what's going on here and what Jesus is doing. Jesus, he doesn't come giving us a list of to-dos as if we need to stay inside the rules, right all these wrongs, tick all these boxes. Jesus is actually telling us and showing us in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that he is looking deeper and beyond. He's looking deeper and beyond these things, beyond or what surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, those religious leaders who focused on the appearance of righteousness, of goodness, of love. The righteousness Jesus is teaching us about here, is showing us here, is a righteousness of the heart, of the inner world that is truly good and loving and in a right relationship with God. Jesus talks about Murder, adultery, divorce, oath-making or making promises. What to do with those who are in need. What to do with those who hurt you. And Jesus says that all of these things show us that what flows out of the heart is anger, lust, hatred, manipulation. He says that this absence of love Jesus' point in all this is to help us see that rule-keeping doesn't make someone righteous. Our experience tells us this. Think about our relationships for a second. Think about your friendships. Just because you know your friend isn't going to murder you, but you know that they hate you, does not make that relationship healthy or good at all. Just because you know that your husband or wife won't go and sleep with someone doesn't make it okay that they spend their time watching pornography or that they're lusting after other women. It's, it's not good. It is not right. Though they might be ticking the, the boxes, things might appear good, loving and righteous. They are not. True goodness goes beyond and deeper than simply keeping rules. God is talking about a righteousness of the heart that goes beyond, that goes deeper. We need a heart like God's, a heart like Jesus's, a heart of love. A heart that its natural response is to move towards others in love. Not hatred, not anger, not lust, not manipulation. And so... Jesus says, a heart that even loves your enemy, that even loves those who seek your harm, who 
who seek not your well-being, but your destruction. Jesus calls us to love them. As we follow Jesus, he teaches us how. He shows us how. He teaches our hearts new lessons of how to love. He refines us as we follow him. Because Jesus knows that it is from the heart that behavior flows. And because we belong to Jesus, he wants a people that belong to him who have the same kind of heart, the same kind of life like his, that loves his enemies. And so uh, this is how we can endure and not fear God's refining judgment. Because it was out of love that Jesus comes to us and he provides a safe and secure and loving context, a loving relationship for all that to play out in, a place where we can be safe and secure and loved by God as we learn to become more like him, as we learn how to be more and more righteous and pleasing to him in our life. And so what does this perhaps look like? I'm going to finish on just three practical things that we can do to partner and participate in what God is doing in our hearts. And so the first thing is remembering that who we are, we have God's love. We have an experience of his love. He has loved us and he calls us his beloved children. We reflect also, secondly, um, we take responsibility, not for what other people are doing, but for what we're doing. We take responsibility for our part to love. God took action. He took responsibility for his part to play first. He moved towards us in love. And so we need to take responsibility for how our heart and how we are acting towards other people. Our heart's reaction. Like Jesus, his heart reacts in love towards those who nail him to the cross as he says, Father, forgive them. We can't change other people like God and Jesus can, but we can change how we relate to them and disrupt <laughs> the, the pattern of this payback, of anger, of hatred, of lust with love. Uh, the third and final thing is just having a realistic expectation, a biblical realism. I could, I've put, could have put here. It's unrealistic to expect that you're never going to stuff this up you're going to be perfect at this. It's also just as unrealistic to think that you can't grow in this. And so the Bible talks about having a life that is characterized by love. When you talk about being characterized by love, it's not that there's ever moments of dips in that. But you pull it off more than you don't. Characterized by love. How can we seek to have a life that's characterized by love? We need to grow in our self-awareness, learning to catch our first heart response to those in our life. Catch the unloving responses. Be aware of them as they come out of our heart. Because as we learn to, to notice them, we are quicker at saying sorry, seeking forgiveness, 
We're quicker at noticing the unloving actions in our life. Those things that are not good, that are not right. And when we learn to catch them and see them and notice them, we'll then grow to be quicker at choosing to love rather than to hate. Choosing to love rather than to lust. Choosing to love rather than hate. Jesus is drawing near to us because he knows our hearts are absent in this. As followers of Jesus, he's moved into your life and this is what he's doing. The question is, are we partnering with him? Are we on board with what he's doing? His blood has cleansed your life, cleansed your heart. He's given us a safe and loving context to learn God's ways. Because yes, Jesus calls us as we are, but he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants us to be pleasing to him. Lives that are righteous from the heart like his. When we belong to Jesus, we enjoy a safe and secure and loving relationship with God as he does his, his refining work in us. Let me pray. God, our Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the God of peace. The God who comes not to destroy but to refine, to refine us through and through. Thank you that we have this comfort in our hearts because of Jesus, so that our whole spirit, mind and body may be kept blameless at the coming, at his coming. Father, we pray that as we wait, would you continue this work of refining our whole spirit, soul and body to reflect Jesus, to become more like him because he died for us. You are faithful when we are faithless. You are loving when we are unloving. And so we ask that you would surely do what you promised in us. Amen.